Hello and welcome to Warpod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme. In our monthly Westminster Roundup podcast, we give you a quick roundup analysis of the two top stories from Westminster, chosen by Liam, that's him, and Megan, that's her. So Liam, what's your top story? So Megan, my top story for April, which other than being a rather interesting month with regards to the B word, uh, we had a really interesting development from no other than the Secretary of State for Defence, Gavin Williamson. How exciting. Absolutely. And very exciting because, as you all know, because you've been working closely with me on an area of work that we have been running at the Royal Warfare Programme, about the protection of civilians, which is part of broader work around safeguards when the UK is partnering with local forces on the ground, mm-hmm. building part capacity or countering terrorist groups, whether that's across parts of Africa or in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria. And one of the big things that's come out is how is the UK ensuring that civilians are a, cr- a key priority uh, when we are engaging in uh, this, this way. So, Gavin Williamson announced that the MOD would establish a Centre of Excellence for Human Security. And before all those cynics out there think, oh my God, not another Centre of Excellence for Human Security. <laughs> another person in the MOD on sort of a, a desk somewhere that will be the Centre of Excellence for Human Security. We don't know. It's going to have a budget of around two million per year. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's quite interesting because, you know, if you look at some of the media coverage around this, it's sort of setting the UK as the, the first um, country to, to sort of put human security at the core of um, its defence policy. And of course, we have a lot of work, we've done a lot of work around this and we have our own views on it. But I think this is really positive in the sense that there's a lot of momentum around the protection of civilians at the moment. Yeah. We know that, for example, the Foreign Office um, has agreed to review its uh, current joint strategy on the protection of civilians in armed conflict. Uh, so we know that review's ongoing, which, as I say, is a joint uh, strategy which will involve the MOD. So there seems to be some sort of shift here. Something's going on. Absolutely. There's some interest in, in, in this, this subject. Um, and I think it's, it's safe to say that, obviously, the human security covers uh, a lot of things. I think you had a good... Yeah, uh, so it's quite a wide concept and there's quite a lot of debate about what it actually means. Uh, I had a teacher who once said that it was security plus and survival plus. So just um, the external aspects to war, protecting civilians and uh, including gender aspects and different other social aspects Mm -hmm. to protecting protecting civilians in conflict. Well, I mean, that was a good teacher because that's a good good summary (laughs) of it. And, you know, uh, these concepts can sometimes be uh, quite... Uh, complex in terms of who agrees yeah, on like, different definitions even protection of civilians as a concept is you know it's only been around probably since the the, the late 90s when the UN sort of came up with this resolution on absolutely. making sure that you know UN uh, operations peacekeeping operations would include a protection of civilians mandate uh, it is a developing and, and a concept uh, so yeah I think it's it's really interesting that we have got to this point where not only is the FCO looking to improve um, and review its approach to protection of civilians, given all the different Mm -hmm. things that are going on, uh, the MOD is also doing it. But from our perspective, what we want to make sure happens is that, uh, we know, we've got some concerns about, and we've discussed this, about the 2010 protection of civilians strategy, which is, it seems quite focused on um, sort of peacekeeping operations, where the UK is contributing to peacekeeping operations, that there is sort of priorities around uh, protection of civilians and that that mandate is implemented through UK support. But I think from our perspective, it's also about 
whether UK is engaged in, uh, in operations overseas like Iraq and Syria, etc. And how, now that we are more often than not partnering with other local forces that don't have the same attitudes or share the same values, etc. about human rights or even understand the concept of IHL and yeah, protection of civilians, that how are we going to train um, those partner forces in ensuring that the UK commitment to defence, uh, human security and its defence policy is then uh, implemented on the ground and sort of comes to fruition when we're partnering other forces. So that is my my big story of April. I think that's a really positive one. What's yours? It is very positive. Well, just to add to yours, actually. So I, I think it's important to note as well that both the policy from um, 2010 and this current announcement of a new Centre of Excellence, mm-hmm. they both present the UK as this, like, the saviour that comes in to kind of <laughs> uh, show the good values, yeah. such as yeah. protection of civilians and, and gender awareness. Um, and like you say, I think it's really important that both the centre and the new strategy kind of show how the UK can also protect civilians and do better than that when mm-hmm. they are themselves mm-hmm. involved in those operations, yeah. when they are conducting airstrikes. It's not just something that the UK is doing to help others, but it's actually the UK reflecting on its own way of training its personnel. Exactly. And there's an interesting point where it says about that service pers- selected service personnel will attend a Centre of Excellence for Human Security um, is that like a training program or a conference or something? I don't know. But to, yeah. to cover these broad issues um, around countering sexual abuse, child soldiers, all the things that you talked about. So it'd be interesting to see how you know how that works in terms of that training. But it is a positive thing and something that Definitely. we should follow with interest. Absolutely. Great. Okay, so my story is actually cheating a little bit because my story <laughs> is not from April, it's from March. Oh, um, no. I know. <laughs> so in late April, or late March, sorry. Get it um, right. <laughs> we're cheating, remember. <laughs> uh, five UK special forces were injured in a gun battle in Yemen. This is quite troublesome in several ways. Um, first of all, there were claims that the special forces had been working alongside child soldiers as young as 13 years old. Um, that, of course, contradicts the UK's legal obligation and places the UK's moral credibility in the spotlight. But secondly, and more importantly to our work, it goes against repeated statements from the government that the mm. UK is not at war in Yemen. Exactly. And that raises really important questions for us about the government's transparency about when the UK is at war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something we've been looking into for a long time and we have a hard time understanding the difference between combat yeah. and, and non-combat yeah. relations in the, in the government's eyes. Um, it's also important to note that when the story broke, there were allegations that Brexit was the reason that it wasn't given as much attention as mm. it could possibly have been yeah, given. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a big story, wasn't it? It certainly shouldn't it should have been. should have been a big story, um, at least. And it maybe wasn't as big as it could have been. Yeah. And maybe that is because of Brexit. Um, so Andrew Mitchell, an MP, said that we're enough for the all-consuming nature of Brexit. I suspect that the House would have wanted to explore this as a matter of urgency. Um, and we do yeah. kind of think that that's true, that they would have been more focused yeah. if it hadn't been for the beat where taking yeah. everything else yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was, there was a lot of anger going to the point that you make about, you know, ministers have come to the dispatch box in the House of Commons on numerous occasions yeah. to say that we are not a party to this conflict. Well, it looks like we are. So, you know, either the government doesn't know what special forces are doing, which exactly. you know, raises yes. concerns yeah. about where they're operating, what their strategy is, what their purpose is of being deployed in this way, um, or the government is, you know, just attempting to mislead uh, the House of Commons and, and parliamentarians, which I think is is really damaging, really, uh, for that relationship between um, Parliament and, and the government. And Especially as special forces become more and more used, um, like force in, in warfare, it becomes precisely. more and more the way yeah. we engage yeah. in conflicts abroad. So it seems like it's something we should have better mm-hmm. oversight over. Yeah. Um, and it is worrying that the government appears to have gotten away with it as well because we don't have better oversight mechanisms as a, as a whole for special forces. Yeah. Um, it seems a shame, as we've argued 
many times before that the yeah. government only engages in this when something goes wrong. Yeah. That they never have that um, approach of talking about why they're engaging in different places, mm -hmm. especially when the enemy is a very clear like bad guy. Said yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, so it seems strange that they're not engaging beyond when things go wrong um, and they're called up in the media. Yeah, and I mean Andrew Mitchell mentioned I think in the in the house on the day that that announcement came out. I think it was the twenty fifth of March or something like that. Um, but he wanted answers about where British armed forces were mm -hmm. deployed, where where were they actually injured, as one newspaper was was reporting. Yeah. And the minister came back and said, "No, you know, we're not going to talk about this." So I think that's slightly concerning when you've got absolutely, as you say, no means to even debate the issue. Absolutely. You know, the, the, how how do you get around that? How can you? This is a major issue that the government needs to respond to, surely. And there is absolutely no mechanism for doing so. I mean, one of the things that we were sort of advocating for was that you would let the ISC uh, have access to this in some form, some way, mm -hmm. uh, to be able to report to Parliament about what actually happened and what went wrong. I think that would have increased the trust between uh, the government and Parliament and addressed that this ridiculous scrutiny gap that appears to exist, where, yeah. you know, uh, on, one, on the one hand, you've got the government saying we're not a party to the conflict and then it's coming out these allegations coming out. Now, of course, uh, you, know, you could argue these are speculation, they're reports, yeah. but I think there was a general consensus across the political spectrum that these were pretty robust um, reports from uh, the Sunday media back in March. So I Definitely. think, you know, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it wouldn't be unusual if the, if the UK government was to introduce some kind of oversight. So most of their allies actually have that already. Um, so in the report that we did last year, we looked quite a lot at the UK's allies trying to figure out um, if there were any systems that we could copy. Yeah. And we found that every single ally we looked at, every single Western ally we looked at, all has some kind yeah. of oversight mechanism. Yeah. So it doesn't make sense for us not yeah. to have the same thing here. And it's just good to say that there were those that we did a deep dive of in terms of their parliamentary systems, weren't there? And then those that yeah. we looked at that might comment at least on the special forces of exactly. like, uh, Canada or, or um, Australia, yeah. New Zealand. So yeah, I think it just seems peculiar that the UK has this policy where it just does not, even when there's something like this, this crisis, exactly. uh, this scandal appears to, to happen and there's no alternative. Definitely. All right, well, thank you very much for your story.